Hi, welcome to More Christ. Today I'm joined by Dr. Robert M. Woods. Robert is the author and head teacher at Veritas Christian Academy in the USA. He's written magnificent books and articles introducing readers to classical education and the great books. First, dwelling on Delphi, thinking Christianly about the liberal arts. Then in 2019, Mortimer Adler's The Padilla Way of Classical Education. So just to begin then, Robert, um, what really prompted your interest in the liberal arts and some of the central concerns that we see in your work? Uh, when I was a college sophomore, I was at a Christian university. And while it was primarily for in preparation for ministry uh, and those who are interested in ministry and, and pursuing that as vocation, uh, there were a number of classes that I took that were general education courses. And those general education courses really got me thinking about uh, the fullness of the life of the mind and uh, what true discipleship looks like or what it might look like for somebody committed to Christ. And then I went on to uh, graduate studies and I had a professor in um, the graduate program was a master's in religious studies, systematic theology. But I had one professor in particular who was a quite a generalist, and he uh, had a, had him for a course on religious psychology, and a course that kind of changed the way I thought about Christians and culture. It was a course on sociology of religion. And that's where I was introduced to Peter Berger. And I asked Professor Sauce, I said, uh, Dr. Sauce, where did you study? Where did you get your, your PhD? And he said, Florida State University. It's a PhD in humanities. It's a, a generalist a kind of humane learning, humane letters education. And so I applied, I applied to Florida State. I applied to Emory. I was accepted to both. I could not afford Emory, uh, so uh, Florida State became the default university for a PhD. And I was very blessed uh, when I was at Florida State, there were still a number of, of what we might call the old school humanist. And so I was exposed to the great books, uh, the great ideas, Greek and Roman humanities, medieval Renaissance, the modern world humanities, interdisciplinary art, literature, philosophy, music, uh, cultural interpretation. And, and, and as I said, they were the old school humanists. And by that, I mean, um, these were men and women who believed in truth, believed there was such a thing as, as goodness, uh, weren't always settled on what it was, but believed in it and believed in pursuing it. And so after I completed my PhD in humanities, I kind of had a, a hunger for thinking more explicitly and more Christianly about the humanities and liberal arts. And I don't remember how uh, or when, but was very fortunate to come across Harry Blemeyer's uh, The Christian Mind. And that book was a book that was a catalyst for me and thinking. I wanted to then, from that point on, think deeply and Christianly about the liberal arts and what it meant and how the liberal arts were connected to not only the life of the mind, but the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ. And 
seriously wanting to take every thought captive for the glory of Christ. And so then, you know, you, you start running in different directions. And the good news is all the way from um, Francis Schaeffer back in the day uh, to an Oz Guinness um, to now, I, I, we, could, we could just catalog in just about every discipline, uh, a David Lyle Jeffrey and Alan Jacobs, you know, uh, great people of deep faith who think deeply about and Christianly about their, their disciplines. And so uh, that's kind of been my my pilgrimage. And I was a professor at um, uh, Point University, and um, they uh, wanted to start a humanities program and was there at Point University. So I was influenced by uh, the Great Books Foundation at that time, left Point University, ended up at Faulkner University. And that's where they asked me to start a Great Books Honors College. And so by then it was, okay, wow, I, I get to actually do what I've been thinking about for a couple of years with the Great Books Foundation and Mortimer Adler, the National Paideia Center, and kind of weaving all that together, making my way through Adler's Paideia material, and then and then putting it into practice at Faulkner University. Mm, brilliant. Thanks for sharing there, Robert. And um, I want to ask you just a little bit more then about... Uh, your background and some key events in your life that helped to form you and your love for Christ and his church then. So you touched upon it there a little bit, but would you like to tell us a bit more about that? Uh, when I was a, a sophomore in college, I do remember, I distinctly had two professors who were, they were that beautiful blend of intellectual brilliance and a humble, modest walk with the Lord. And both of those professors influenced my thinking. Uh, they, they were both, they were uh, Bible professors and um, church history professors, but I can remember multiple times being struck by how, how sharp their minds were, but also how keen their walk was with Christ. And so that, you know, I never, uh, even though I've been a professor for uh, more than 25 years and teaching for more than 25 years, I never had a how to teach class, but I had such great teachers. I had a couple of great teachers in high school, um, uh, one in high school, one in middle school. They weren't Christians uh, that I know of, but they were, they were just fine teachers and then my Christian instructors in college and in graduate school, uh, I, I tried to model them. I wanted to be like them when it came to uh, the sharpness of their mind, the love of their disciplines and their love of students and their love of learning and their commitment to following Christ. So that, that's pretty, pretty significant foundation that was laid by these individuals. Mm, brilliant. Thanks for sharing that, Robert. And um, today I'd love to look at some of your written work, as I said, beginning with Dwellin on Delphi, thinking Christianly about the liberal arts, which you've just mentioned. So I'd like to touch upon this book. Um, I think it's brilliant and important in equal measure. I want to ask why are the liberal arts, I suppose, in decline today? And why should we, maybe especially as Christians, be concerned by that? Um, I think the the reason the liberal arts are in decline may be twofold. 
and it it could be uh, it, it it's part. Um, I mean, I guess we think in terms of of um, geography. Uh, let the, let's use that as an image, as a as a metaphor. I think the the soil that was at one point in the Western intellectual tradition was thoroughly um, harvested. You know, great great attention was given to the soil, and the seed of Christianity of Christendom was planted in that soil, and it gave birth to. Uh, you know, we saw the fruit of that labor within the arts, uh, you know, literature, philosophy, uh, historiography. I mean, they were all for centuries from the early church until around the Enlightenment um, in Europe. They were all so much influenced by the Christian faith. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you, you can take any humanities textbook written in the United States and you can look at it from you know, like in the 1980s, 1990s, and you look at the humanities textbook, you kind of, you can clearly see uh, the fingerprint of Christendom all over Western civilization. And I would say by extension, you, you see the, the presence of the logos, the, the, the very word of God in Western civilization, in, within humanities. And then we get to the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution. And, and I'm in that camp that believes it, it wasn't just an intellectual splitting, um, a chasm that was created. It wasn't just intellectual. I think it was social also. The, the social influence of the Christian faith was, was shifting to the periphery. So we're seeing less and less of... of um, iconography, of imagery, of the language. I, I remember hearing Os Guinness, you know, once say that there was a time where we could speak Christianese and, and everyone understood the language. And he says, you know, we can't do that anymore. There, there is no Christianese out there as a language, as a vocabulary. So I think um, I, on the one hand, so that occurred. Well, then, uh, so on the one hand, some of the geography was taken from its Christian roots, its Christian heritage. I think with an increasingly secularized consciousness, there were people that wanted to just divorce themselves from our religious heritage, our religious roots. I, I once heard about a professor of medieval philosophy who said, um, and I was aware of this person. I knew he was real. He wasn't a, a strong man. They said that this professor, who will remain nameless, said he hated Thomas Aquinas and considered him a third-rate philosopher and in his medieval philosophy course did not teach anything about Thomas Aquinas other than to set him up and throw him away. And I remember when I heard the story and I knew of the professor, I thought I wasn't surprised because I knew of the professor, but I'm absolutely dumbfounded. I mean, how can you, how could you teach medieval philosophy and not deal with the premier philosopher of the Middle Ages? Um, even if you used him as a as a bully pulpit in, in a secularized consciousness, but you know, just to disregard him. Um, then on the other side, I think, and I, I I want my brothers and sisters to hear this as a a, a 
a sad lament as a lament. And that is, I think we within Christianity gave up on the humanities also. Um, I think we, for various reasons, rooted in both the Enlightenment and Industrial Revolution, I think the life of the mind for disciples of Christ became, um, it, it wasn't a priority any longer. And it wasn't, you know, we didn't, we didn't care as much about art and literature and history and music and philosophy and their interrelationship. We cared less and less and were taken more captive to the, to popular culture. And so I think when that occurred, you know, so part of it was something was taken from us. Part of it is we surrendered it. Uh, but I, I would, I'm always encouraged when I see Christians, especially you know, in classical Christian schools, taking seriously these roots, this heritage, and reclaiming it and, and enjoying it and celebrating the good, the true, and the beautiful. Mm, excellent. Thanks, Robert. And then um, if we take a break, then what are some of the good fruits that you mentioned there that liberal arts actually has yielded in and that we would do well to rediscover? Some of the good fruits... I think there is something invigorating about being forced, uh, being moved to see things in a different way. Uh, let me give an anecdote here. I, I, when I was working on my PhD, I can remember sitting in uh, Dr. Golden's Greek and Roman humanities class and Dr. Golden, a brilliant uh, humanist, a classical scholar. <laughs> he was writing on the board and I was, sitting about midway in the room, and I thought, oh, his, his writing is atrocious. And I thought, I'm going to have to sit closer so I can take these notes and get these notes down. And then class was over that day, and I walked by the board, and I looked back at the board, and I thought, wait a minute. I, I can read very well everything he wrote. And then I thought, uh-oh, my vision had so deteriorated that I did not even notice it. I did not realize it. And so I went to the uh, university eye doctor and got my eyes examined and uh, received some glasses just a few weeks later. I believe that interacting with the great books and the great ideas can be that kind of experience that now I see something. Um, I think that it's uh, one of the, you know, some of the great fruit that can come from engaging the great tradition is it can push us out of what Walker Percy referred to the everydayness of our life. And I think we are, we are all too often, we are all, we, we sink into, we're sunken into the everydayness. When I read a great work of literature or when I examine a, a masterpiece painting, and I, and I sit still for just a few moments, or I stand and I gaze, or I sit and I listen to a, a great piece of music, and I listen attentively, I think some of the fruit that can come from that um, is fruit that can be complementary to the life of a disciple, you know, where we are, we're called to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. Um, I've, I've long thought that the liberal arts, when properly encountered and engaged, 
can help cultivate patience because it, it takes a little effort. It takes uh, some work to encounter these authors and these minds and these ideas. And I think that kind of patience is complementary to what we're called to in, in sacred scripture, to be patient. Um, where our culture doesn't, doesn't seem to, you know, with instant everything, whether it be popcorn or whether it be an instant message, it doesn't seem to encourage um, to slow down and to be still and to be patient. So, so that, that might be some of, the, uh, some of the fruit that we can still harvest. Excellent. Thanks, Robert. And um, just as you were speaking there, I was wondering if perhaps you could tell us about maybe one or two of the great works that have been particularly moving for you and what you find so compelling about them. That's great. I, let, me, let me begin. Uh, I'll, we'll ping on a few here. Um, Homer's Odyssey is a work that I can remember reading it as a younger man and not, not really, not really getting it. Um, probably I was a Telemachus when I, when I read it. So I, I didn't quite get all that was going on in the universe. And then I can remember reading the Odyssey later and, uh, reading it as a, probably when I was around uh, the age of Odysseus. And I had traveled some and had ex some experiences. And now I think um, I'm, at the, I'm getting close to Laertes. And so I, I think that's one of those works that having revisited that work numerous times has always shed uh, some light, not only on the work. I've seen some things I didn't see before, but some light has been shed on my life. And so that's, that's one of those. Uh, I think Dante's Divine, uh, you know, the Commedia, I, you know, like most people, was introduced to it via the Inferno, and then that was pretty it. I even had a college professor who said, that's pretty much as good as it gets. And I, I, I love and respect him, but I, I slightly disagree. Uh, Purgatorio, having read it now in a few different translations, it, it is a work to read. It is a work to reread and live in that work and let that work live in you. And then Paradiso, I mean, that, that is uh, grappling with being in the presence of God and what, you know, and, and the intimations of what that might be. Uh, Flannery O'Connor, the writings, the novels of Flannery O'Connor have profoundly um, shaped my life. I think first time I ever read Wise Blood, um, that it was, it was transformational. I, I, even taught it a few years at a community college in Florida. And I can remember having students, religious students be offended and non-religious students be offended. And I thought, okay, maybe they understand Flannery O'Connor too. Uh, so that, that was always nice. And yeah, um, and I mean, there are other, there are a number of other novelists. Ray, Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451 was quite influential in my life a decade or so ago. Uh, but there, yeah, there are a number of writers that I love to read and love to talk about and love to hear. I love to share the names. Uh, Zoran Zakovich is an author that just came on my radar a few years ago, and he's he's a delightful author and, and quite ingenious in, in the way he formulates things. So. Brilliant. And um, I should say that if anybody's interested, they would do well to read some of your little articles on the imaginative conservative to find out some of those figures I recommend that 
Yes, I forgot about that. Yes, I, I have a number of little, and they're, they're probably more homage pieces than anything or any other value because uh, these authors have so enjoyed them and they've, say, they've been such a blessing and benefit to my, to my life and my soul, my mind. Mm, thanks for that, Robert. And then um, just going back to the, the big picture, I suppose, of liberal arts work from your experience and what you've learned, uh, can we find the liberal arts alive and well today then, I suppose? Yeah, that's a great question. I, this is why I'm like uh, G.K. Chesterton. You know, I, I, don't, I don't despair. And uh, frequently... When I can remember a conversation with Ken Myers of Mars Hill Audio many years ago, and Ken, uh, I said to Ken, I said, oh, this sometimes it's so discouraging or so depressing. And he said, ah, you know, you quit, quit being so uh, mournful about it. He says, there are many out there who have not bowed a knee to bail, and you need to remember that. And, and so every now and then I'm reminded of that. Uh, I think just as, and, and in different ways, but in some ways comparable to the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, that you know, Christianity, the Christian faith, sacred scripture, and the Christian tradition made it through there. I mean, it, it flourished. The empire, one of the greatest empires in human history, human civilization collapsed. It came to an end. Uh, or as G.K. Chesterton, you know, when he says there's been at least five times that it looked like the church went to the dogs and all five times the dogs died. And so I think, I think Chesterton gets it spot on. And during one of those deaths was, you know, with the decline and the fall of the Roman Empire, with the, you know, the monastic order, I mean, the, the, the monastic tradition kept sacred scripture and even some pagan scriptures very much alive. And if it wasn't for that tradition, so I think maybe what we have in the comparable world today would be all of the um, classical Christian schools, all of the homeschool families, uh, all of the, the church-driven uh, educational uh, centers. I think those would be an example where we could find the uh, liberal arts very much alive. I, I, I hesitate to do this, but probably though you need to stop around 12th grade. There, no, th no doubt there are some colleges and universities where you can still see the liberal arts alive and well. Um, there are, uh, but I think you would, you would be more likely to find something that looks like a robust engagement with and love of the Western intellectual tradition in a classical Christian school or homeschool consortium. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Thanks. We can speak a little bit about yours later, actually, Robert. I think that would be important and good. Okay. Um, so next, if I may, I'd love to speak about your more recent book on Mortimer Moradler. So the Paideia way of classical education. And so first, can you tell us a little bit of how that book came about and what do you hope readers will gain from it then? Yeah, this is a, a neat kind of serendipitous story. I was at a headmaster conference with, I think there were maybe just a dozen to 15 of us. And we're sitting around a massive table at the University of Dallas in Texas. 
and we were invited there by the University of Dallas, and they had a, a really uh, robust University of Dallas. Liberal arts are alive and well there. Um, they they had a, a robust kind of intellectual feast for us to participate in, and some readings and discussions and some lectures. And I was sitting right next to David Diner, and I knew David from being headmaster at another classical Christian school in Texas at the time. And we're talking, and I don't even remember how we got to the subject of Adler and Paideia. And I, I, I think I lit up. I think I was, it was, oh, well, let me, and I've been studying Adler for years, and I've been trying to get more of the Paideia. And he said, well, there's a series of books called Giants in the History of Education, published by Classical Academic Press. There are a few volumes out. Would you be interested in writing the Adler volume? I said, yes. And that was it. And there it was. And so uh, I think it was the next week we exchanged some information via email. And then I received the contract and uh, wrote the volume in about a year. And the the publishers or and the editorial crew at Classical Academic Press are phenomenal people, um, very, very, very helpful people. And so that's that's what gave birth to this particular volume on Mortimer Adler. Mm, thanks, Robert. And um, suppose could you tell us a, a bit about Adler, his historical and his intellectual context? And I suppose how does he contrast with the more perverse kind of intellectual that many of us are familiar with today, described kind of lamentably by Tom Sowell or Paul Johnson, people like that? Yes, absolutely. I, Adler, it's interesting because there was a time where Adler would have been a Thomas Sowell or a Paul Johnson, they, where you know the people would have recognized Adler as a kind of, uh, to use this uh, term, and I don't think it was used pejoratively by most people, maybe some elites in the academy, but Adler was called a public philosopher. And he was very much a public philosopher whose and his primary goal, I think, was to, to get the great ideas um, out there and get more American citizens and then later world citizens involved in the uh, great conversation. And so he, Adler, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating story in its own rights, but Robert Hutchins, Mortimer Adler, have been called kind of the grandfather of classical education in America. And you know, I, I like to point out in a, in a kind way to folks who speak about um, the roots of American classical education, the roots kind of run in different directions and it needs to be thought of kind of as a tree and as many roots or as a tree with many branches. And that is most people in America are familiar with the evangelical Protestant version of classical education, classical Christian education. There is a robust Catholic uh, version of classical education. There is a robust Greek Orthodox version of classical education in the United States. And there are those who would say Adler uh, doesn't always get, Adler and Hutchins do not always get the credit they deserved for the seeds they planted in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, they were planting seed that we start seeing some of the growth um, in the 
60s and 70s, and it's not until the 1980s where we get the Paideia proposal. You know, that's where Adler and the Paideia group said, all right, enough's enough. Here it is. Uh, but it's, it's worth noting before the 80s, Adler for decades was practicing Paideia seminar, was advocating for Paideia education. But it's not until the Paideia proposal and then Paideia problems and possibilities and then the Paideia program, which is a full-blown you know, syllabus, if you want to, if you want to implement this and make, you know, make Paideia reality in a school, this is what it looks like. And this predates much of the work that's done by uh, Doug Wilson's fine little book on recovering the lost tools of learning, which was inspired by Dorothy Sayers, um, the lost tools of learning. But if you read Adler's Paideia proposal carefully and you look at his three columns. I mean, you look at those three um, categories of didactic learning, academic coaching, and Paideia seminar, and you look at those three, and you look at the goals and objectives, you look at the, the material that's being covered, you look at the way students are being engaged with those three um, columns, guess what you discover? You discover classical education at its very best. The roots are all right there. So that, that is what I would hope. And what I tried to do in this uh, volume on Adler was I really tried to go through several thousand pages of Adler's writings and call it to a single volume that hopefully acts as a catalyst for more people to say, I need to read the Paideia proposal. Or if I'm involved in classical education or homeschooling my children, how can I um, implement more of this Paideia approach to classical learning. So that's the that's the main objective. Excellent and worthwhile one too, I think. And um, I suppose to, to serve for clarity, I love Oz Guinness, who you mentioned as this great expression, um, contrast is a mother of clarity. So just to take that and apply it, how does a Mortimer, I suppose we're painting in broad strokes, but how does he understand the nature and purpose of education in contrast with the kind of factory model decried by people like John Peter Gatto? <laughs> sure, sure. That sounds great. Uh, Adler in a number of places describes, uh, he, he will talk about learning or education in terms of information, um, knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. And he, he uses those terms repeatedly in different essays, uh, essays where he describes Aristotle, the way Aristotle talks about how we learn. Um, and in the Paideia approach, the Paideia proposal is, he constantly is conveying the idea that, that learning is significantly more about the moving of information from point A to point B. You know, it's so the, the factory model really is a, a, a model where uh, you, you fit this cog on this widget and then you connect them. And then here is your end product is this a kind of mechanistic image of what learning is. And Adler would say it's, it's not that. Adler was part of an understanding of, commu of a not only communication, but of community 
and of learning, teaching and learning. That's a, another thing Adler says constantly. Education is about teaching and learning, teaching and learning. So it's, it's giving, receiving, and then reciprocating, returning. And for Adler, the human being, if you want to know what a person is thinking, you cannot just speak something and then say, do you understand? And the person nods their head. True teaching and learning occurs when a, uh, a facilitator, a teacher, a communicator conveys something in some way, form, or fashion and is received and the teacher knows it by either listening to the way the student responds or by looking at what the student does with writing or uh, the making of an art piece or playing a musical instrument, that's how you know that somebody's learning. It's not just by the nodding of the head. It's, it's significantly more than that. And so Adler you know, communicates that education occurs when the one who is providing the knowledge and the wisdom, he, he or she knows it's been received and you can observe that in a number of ways. And that's, I think, would be the, the key difference between Adler and, and the sit and get uh, or the drill and kill model of education. Thanks, Robert. And then I suppose from a distinctly Christian perspective and a, in terms of how that, the Christian story fulfills the goods that were in the ancient world, how do, a, or what role, I suppose, do truth, goodness and beauty play in an authentic, say, Christian, Christian classical education? And how do they help us to judge ideas and s serve as a bulwark, I suppose, against what we're being bombarded with now with propaganda, even a kind of crushing utilitarianism that sees the world in more mechanistic uh, terms, as you describe, and I suppose uh, historical ignorance in contrast to what you, you touched upon with your own story. Oh, yeah, that's fantastic. I think um, most people who know of Mortimer Adler, I believe they know of either Adler's association with the, the Great Books series uh, and the extraordinary role he played in the development of the Syntopicon, the two-volume index of the Great Books series, which is an extraordinary resource tool. Most people know of him that way, or they know of him by his bestseller, it's, it's actually, it's my understanding, it's the only Adler book that from its first printing has stayed in print and is still in print, and that is How to Read a Book. And the book, that book, um, I mean, I, I've had students over the years see it on my shelf and they chuckle at the title. You know, don't, don't you know how to, don't you have to know how to read in order to read How to Read a Book? And I, I get the joke. I, it's kind of funny. <laughs> but, uh, and, and, and it's a, it is dry in places, but I think anyone who's ever made their way through that book admits that it is a feast. So Adler, Adler's known for his book, How to Read a Book, because it's been in print for so many years and it re has remained in print. But the other book I would highly recommend for everyone to get their hands on is How to Speak, How to Listen. When I think about the, 
not just skills, but the, the complementary habits of the soul that are found in that book that complement the life of the disciple, the follower of Christ. If, if there is something that, besides our, our deep love for Christ and his kingdom, that separates us from the world, the way in which we interact with the world, we ought to be better at listening, truly listening, and then speaking the right words, wise words. Um, and I think about, uh, obviously, you know, uh, Os Guinness's book of a few years ago, ago Fool's Talk. I mean, here is, uh, you know, Os Guinness writes this marvelous contemporary masterpiece on how to speak, how to speak as Christians, uh, not in some formulaic manner, but in an organic manner inspired by the Spirit speaking to the, to the moment and speaking wise words. Adler's book, How to Speak, How to Listen, can cultivate uh, that disposition of the soul where one knows how to listen. Uh, I, I, I believe that book, if it was seriously read and engaged by a number by Christians, it would it would enhance their Bible study, it would enhance their it would uh, help their marriage, it would encourage their ministry, it would bless them in their relationship with their children, because listening is one of the liberal arts, humane arts that's all but gone and, as Adler says, almost never taught. Um, so I, I think that's where I would start. I mean, start with that book and look at the, uh, the, the gifts of listening and speaking within the, the Christian uh, worldview in a complementary way to what Adler says. Mm, excellent. Thank you, Robert. And um, so you mentioned a few things that he's well known for. One of the things that you mentioned was the great books. I wonder um, why did he and why do you, I suppose, consider the great books so vital? And how are we defining great there, I suppose, going beyond the kind of utilitarianism we mentioned before or kind of um, more crude materialist sense then? Yeah, yes, that's a great question. And, you know, and, and in the 1980s and 90s, uh, the idea of the great books came under uh, significant criticism you know, who, who says what great is anymore? And uh, when you look at the canon, it's defined by, you know, dead white European males and those criticisms. And while there may have been um, a, uh, a grain of truth to those criticisms, it is unfortunate that you know, it's, it was the proverbial throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And I think by trying to dismiss the entire great books tradition, uh, on those grounds was uh, unfortunate, and it has it cost us dearly. Uh, Adler and others who have thought about the great books, whether it be of the Western intellectual tradition or of the European tradition or the specifically, you know, the African tradition, or you could even talk about great literature uh, within the Canadian tradition or Latin American tradition, you know, all of those would have their, their own great books. And usually the criteria includes such things as works that um, made a difference in their moment, but then continue to echo on and continue to make a difference 
beyond their moment, continued to be recognized as being a classic or a masterpiece. And that's why we rarely use the phrase instant classic. The idea of an instant classic doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, but these are also works that are recognized in their time, but later times as being significant. Adler and others, Hutchins and uh, Otto Bird, would say that these are also works that speak to the human condition, and they speak to uh, the human, the whole human drama. And so they touch on great humane themes. What does it mean to be a human? What's the meaning of life? Uh, why work? Uh, uh, family, the, what, does, what do families do? What is what is a community? It addresses these in different ways. And uh, I, I would say too, one term that's often used for it is that great books set the standard. I mean, they are the, the standard that other books are measured by. I've had students over the years ask me about contemporary works. You know, I, I do read, I try to do what C.S. Lewis says. I think he says that you you should read three books for every modern, three classics for every modern modern book you read. So I, I do read modern books and modern authors, but I have students, they say, oh, this book, oh, it's standards and no one's ever written. And I said, no, if you knew the great books and the great tradition, you would know this work is derivative of Dante or this work is, it is very much an echo of Milton. <laughs> it, it, it is Virgil for New York, you know, it, so you, you know, these students need to know these works, these great books set the standard. And so that's, that's part of a, I can as part of what I would say would be a, a defense of what these works are and why we should encounter them. Yeah, excellent. Thank you, Robert. And I think you see that what you described there, even with people like Bob Dylan, who I know is purposely very intertextual, will refer implicitly to classical writers and people hold him up as the great modern singer, songwriter, poet, even got the Nobel Prize and everything. But then there's Dante right in there and all these different classical. Yes. Oh, and, and many of the, the great poets of the modern moment will admit it. They will say, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants and they will give homage uh, and they will pay deference to these other works in allusions and references. Absolutely. <laughs> and um, I want to shift focus to look at the role of the teacher a little bit, if we might, Robert. Um, I want to ask just what makes, I suppose, Marx, the Paideia teacher, the classical Christian teacher generally, as distinct from maybe the model teacher at a standard state school, for example. I know we're speaking in generalities, but that makes Sure, sense. sure. One of the things when I'm hiring a, a staff, a teacher, for a position at a classical Christian school is Adler describes, speaks about, and, and so does James Shaw. James Shaw uses the same term of docility. And, and that it, it's, it's probably would be received as a very negative word, I think in the secular world, but it means um, a kind of openness and a, a malleable disciple model. You know, we, I want a teacher who is cognizant of the truth that he or she is not the expert in a classroom where they're studying Shakespeare. 
Shakespeare is the expert that we are all looking to and learning from. The teacher, and, and I think all due respect to great teachers, is the teacher is, is the, uh, maybe the strongest of the pupils and the wisest of the pupils and the most knowledgeable of the pupils. But the teacher is still the one who is the, uh, the facilitator and the mediator of the good, the true, and the beautiful. The teacher is not the source of the good, the true, and the beautiful. Now, I say that to say, though, that you do want teachers in a classical Christian school that deeply love Christ and love their neighbor as themselves. You know, if, if we can keep that commandment in front of us in the classroom that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we love these students, these human beings who are in our midst, uh, no mere mortals, as Lewis says, and we have to remember that they are no mere mortals, and we love them, and we love our subject, and we're always learning and always growing. I think that's what separates the, the uh, classical Christian teacher from uh, a secular model. Mm, brilliant. Thanks, Robert. And um, then I suppose looking at the students, then I feel sorry for many modern young people in what is called education and kind of secular state education that I've been involved with in the past. Uh, Catherine Bubbles, when I spoke with her, she mentioned that unfortunately there's a kind of Rousseauian idea uh, undergarden much modern education where man is born free and everywhere in chains. So you have this disrespect for authority figures. And um, I think that's a, another contrast. Maybe I'm wrong with, with that, but I think that's a contrast with classical Christian schools. Would you like to speak to that a little bit and what you might expect from students in a classical school then? Oh, good. Yeah, absolutely. I think the best way I would say the general consensus in classical Christian schools about um, children is uh, to take a page from uh, Charlotte Mason is they, they, are, they are little human beings. And then to, to take something from C.S. Lewis, they are, they are no mere mortals, not a single one of them. Uh, every one of them one day will either be, as Lewis describes, a a being glorified in the presence of God through the, the mercy of Christ, and we would be tempted to worship them if we could see them as they will be uh, glorified, resurrected. Or, as Lewis Wright, he describes and says, we would, if we, we saw them in their eternal state separated from God, we would cringe in terror and horror at, at the sight of them. So they're no mere mortals. They're, you know, there is there is a being whose existence far surpasses the borders of the classroom and of the school campus. And with that in mind, I think most classical Christian schools, when when they have the right mind about these little human beings, is they see themselves as stewards of their lives, of these young lives, and we are called to constantly glorify Christ and exalt Christ in their presence. Uh, we are called to edify and instruct, encourage, exhort, admonish, and direct. Um, we're trying to cultivate habits of the heart and of the mind within the classical Christian school. 
And so I think the student in the classical Christian school is, is not seen just as a, a container that's to be filled with data, but a being who bears the image of God, who has fallen and has been tainted by the sins of our first parents um, and can be fully restored in Christ. And that's how we see them. And so in a classical Christian school, education is thought of in those uh, eternal terms. You know, there's an eternal landscape at which we are doing what we're doing in a classical Christian school. Mm, Brilliant. Thanks, Robert. And then um, another thing I think is most important that some people might overlook is the importance of the place, the classroom itself, so that um, children are not in this overcrowded, inattentive kind of classroom where you have 30 to 40, like whenever I was teaching in London, you'd have 30 to 40 children shouting over one another. What might we expect of the classroom and the structure in some classical Christian schools then? I have been blessed to be able to to work with a number of classical Christian schools, uh, either as a consultant or um, as an individual bringing professional development or as a headmaster and as a teacher. And so I've been able to see a number of different classical Christian schools to varying degrees. And I would say some of the constants are you go into a classroom where it is very much alive. Uh, it, is, it is alive with activity and engagement, but it's not what I would call, it's not polluted with noise and distraction. It's a very focused and a harnessed buzz, if that makes sense. And um, most of the time, that's what the classical Christian schools are like, whether it be in the grammar school with the ways in which the grammar school children are encouraged to memorize and recite or the way in which they're engaged with narration. Uh, I can remember the first time I ever saw narration implemented. Um, I remember thinking I was on a uh, hidden camera show and that these little boys and girls were actors and actresses and they had all been scripted to at a certain point prompted to say something about Charlotte's Web, and they had their script, and they were genius little actors and actresses who would memorize their lines, and they were there just to to say, this is the production, this is the show, what do you think? And I go, and then I discovered later, oh no, <laughs> that there was no scripting. These children had been trained and taught how to listen and how to recite, how to listen and how to retrieve what's in their mind and to speak. Uh, I've heard kindergarten children provide narration from a Bible story that would be uh, comparable to some professors at a university. It, it is mind-blowing. And so it's that kind of view of the student and that kind of classroom structure that says receive and return, receive and give. And uh, it's that kind of teaching and learning that is, is pretty common in classical Christian schools. Mm, thanks, Robert. And then um, 
You mentioned previously the pillars of uh, Mortimer Radler's work. I want to ask a little bit about um, the place of didactic instruction and why that is most important uh, still today and what are we missing out on? Yeah, the I think one of the things I've had people, you know, since the book came out a few years ago and and in doing professional development and sharing on podcasts about this, it's probably one of the most recurring questions because many of our teachers are taught and have been taught for decades via didactic. And they say, so, you know, this is how you learn. And, and I say, yes, this is how I learned uh, didactic. Mortimer Adler learned much of his education early in his life was didactic. And so there are those people who think, so Adler is only wanting to attribute 10 to 15% of classroom instruction to didactic. So why was he so against didactic teaching? And, and I always say, well, first of all, he wasn't against didactic teaching. He was very much in favor of the fitting role and the limited role of didactic instruction. And the main reason Adler is, uh, was in that camp and, and he represented that view is because he saw within the Western intellectual tradition that students who merely receive things, and he tells a, he tells a great story, and I forget where the story is told, but he tells a story of students who received didactic instruction, and then they took a standard test at the end of a term, and the, the test results came out as expected. Those that normally make A's by memorizing X amount of data made A's. Students that made B's memorized the data and they made B's and so on and so forth. And then they said, this is what they did that was different. They said, we then, when they came back in the beginning of the next school term, they administered the same test to the students to see how much the students had retained from when they were able to force the data into their mind, how much they retained. That was when Adler says it, it was a game changer for Adler. They realized that, and, and there have been numerous studies that have proven this over and over and over. The retention of data stored and retrieved in that manner is very small. So then they studied another group of students who were taught certain skills and were taught how to look at something, how to read, how to engage a particular idea or a math formula and how to solve math problems, how to do it. And then they brought them back at the beginning of the next term and the vast majority of the students were able to score as well or better than they had before. In other words, the, the didactic approach is helpful for giving information to data, but it's the academic coaching and it's the Socratic seminars that will actually cultivate a certain disposition of the mind and of the heart and of the soul that stays with the student, not only a week later or months later, but for years, it stays with the student. And that's why Adler places within the, uh, within the Paideia approach, the amount of time and energy given to the communication of and the teaching and the learning approach. Mm. 
Wonderful. Thanks, Robert. And um, as a headmaster yourself, I'm wondering what is and should be the role of the headmaster in line with the kind of idea approach and how does that differ from, say, this kind of stern stereotypes of movies and Matilda? Or... <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I, it's funny. Uh, every now and then we'll, we'll, I'll run into someone who will say, so what do you do? I say, I'm a headmaster at a classical Christian school. Headmaster. So you're like a Hogwarts, right? And you're, you're Dumbledore. I said, well, well, no, not really. Uh, I think there's some qualities and characteristics I hope I, I take from Dumbledore, but certainly not others. Uh, yeah, and I appreciate it. I think more often than not, my wife and I, when we're watching some a TV drama or something, anytime a headmaster is in the, is in the drama, it, he, he or she is always going to be brought bad. They're always going to be wicked. Um, so, you know, the way I communicate to what people with the word headmaster means is it's, a, it's an older, wonderful term. And it means the, the master, he is the head of the masters. Uh, or she is the, the headmistress over the masters. And what this figure does is he or she is the lead teacher. Uh, the lead example, the one who models, hopefully, truth, goodness, and beauty, and the one who uh, models great teaching and great learning. And so um, I take my, you know, I, I take a lead directly from Mortimer Adler. If you, you go on the National Paideia site and you look at the 12 Paideia principles, uh, one of the Paideia principles, I think it's uh, 11 or 12, says that the the head teacher or the principal should be the lead teacher and should be teaching. And um, as long as I have been and will remain a headmaster, I will always be a teacher. And that is teaching the masters, uh, all of the men and women who are over the students at the school, uh, whether I'm teaching them in different ways or whether I'm teaching a class on logic or a class on civics, uh, I think the headmaster should be the uh, the head of the masters and leading by example. Mm, excellent. And um, you just mentioned civics there. How does the Paideia approach, I suppose, at a societal level, make a difference by educating for citizenship? And why is that vital, I suppose, especially now at a time when there's such a tribal division such a kind of failure of responsibilities, it seems, and even a sense of rootlessness, I suppose? Oh, spot on. I, I uh, especially appreciate, appreciate the way you described uh, the sadness of the moment of, of the tribalism. I believe that the Paideia approach to teaching and learning, when implemented, can create communities of conversance. And that is where there are people who are speaking to and listening to one another. And I would say one of the great, um, the virtues that I think over the long run at a classical Christian school that uses the, the Paideia approach is it creates a, a community of people who know how to converse. And if, uh, you know, civics, I, I learned civics under the, the old school, the old way that, you know, a citizen is someone who has responsibilities and rights. I, I'm sad to say I think many uh, citizens, and at least in America, I think many would say 
what does it mean to be a citizen? So I, I have all these freedoms and these rights. I have all these liberties, but they, they ignore the, uh, the responsibilities. And I think it was Solzhenitsyn who said, you know, the, it's the, uh, the lung of rights and the lung of responsibilities. And too many people are trying to live on one lung, the lung of, of my rights. And we, we need both lungs in order to breathe in a hearty and healthy manner. And I think civics, especially within a classical Christian school, civics ought to be that course that is teaching what it means to have dual citizenship, you know, because our, our citizenship first and foremost is the kingdom of God. Uh, but if, you know, we also have citizenship wherever we happen to dwell if we dwell in a, in a country in the world today where citizenship matters, we have dual citizenship and we ought to be cognizant of that. As a matter of fact, one of the, one of the books that I'm, I'm just outlining now, it's probably a year or so out, but I'm outlining is, is on civics. And I want it to be a, a book specifically for younger readers. I, I, I hope everybody, I hope all ages read it, but uh, the, the working title is Virtuous Citizens Living together in harmony. It's a, a line from Plutarch. And I think that's what citizenship is ultimately about, virtuous citizens living together in harmony. Mm, wonderful. Thanks for that, Robert. And um, I mentioned earlier your school, Veritas Christian Academy. Can you tell us a little bit about um, the school and how you've seen some of these wonderful insights and approaches really fleshed out? Yes, I, we've been here uh, this coming October will be five years, and it has been a, a thorough blessing. This is a, a community of families. Uh, we have about 350 students. It's a community of, of families that uh, we're at that place together now where we all recognize there's a kind of a, a beautiful harmony of what a classical Christian school is. And so one of the things that I was tasked by the board when uh, I arrived five years ago was to, to kind of give a good, uh, good look for um, several months, a year or so, and then say, you know, what is the vision of the school? And as a, a classical Christian school, we're about 25. This is our 25th year coming up this year is our 25th year of existence. And it has a great history. I think one of the, of the most beautiful things I've been most encouraged by is the spirit of docility. The administration, the faculty and staff that I get to work with are people that are very open to being a, a, a sound, classical, Christ-centered school. And so uh, we've also implemented quite a bit of Paideia training over the last five years. As a matter of fact, we are a uh, we, we are, if we're not the only, we're one of the few classical Christian schools that is recognized by the National Paideia Center as a Paideia seminar school because we so value the role of seminars in our school. Um, I think we also, it's been a blessing to be able to see a, a, a exaltation of what it means to be a classical Christian school that we are not like Christian school X or Y, not, not in any way speaking ill of them, but there, there are substantive differences between 
being a classical Christian school and just being a American Christian school or a, um, a parochial Christian school. You know, there's, there is a difference. And, and we celebrate those differences. We, we lift those up and say, this is uniquely who we are. And we want to encourage you, if you want your son or daughter to receive a classical Christ-centered education, come to Veritas. We are that place. Amazing, and um, may be blessed, Robert. <laughs> and um, Thank you, brother. You're and uh, you mentioned the book that you're interested in writing. This a year out, approximately. There is there anything else that you're working on at the moment that you still feel the passion to get involved? Sure. Well, this is one of those. Um, what I've always had a kind of itch and interest in the social sciences. I've had people you know, over the years say if you didn't get a PhD in humanities, what would you have pursued? And I said, well, I, I probably would have pursued one of the social sciences, either sociology or anthropology. And so a few years ago, reading um, the book, the, the Great Tradition, or the Liberal Arts Tradition by Kevin Clark and Ravi Jain, they reference in there uh, that the, the roots of the social scientific tradition are rooted in moral philosophy. And I thought, there it is. There it is. That's why now I know I've been so interested in the social sciences. And so I've, I've kind of been a, a, a lay person in sociology and, and anthropology and social psychology for years, reading different books by people like Oz Guinness and, and Stan Gady and uh, J.A. Walters, some great Christian social scientists. Uh, but to make a long story short, I got the itch a few years ago to write a book um, and Roman Rhodes Press is going to be publishing the book in uh, September, October. Uh, I'm almost finished with it, ready to get it to them. It's called Neither Angel Nor Beast, Thinking Christianly and Classically About the Social Sciences Tradition. And so what I what I try to do in the book is say, you know what, we 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 let this tradition fall to the side and we shouldn't have. There's a lot of good in the social sciences and can we redeem them by thinking christianly and classically and so that's what i try to do in this volume that sounds most exciting i look forward to reading it now and um where can viewers or listeners find out more about you and your work then robert well as you you said for years a number of years i was um a senior contributing editor for the imaginative conservative which is online and uh, most of the articles and blogs that I had been write that I had written years ago are still available on there. Um, the other place, oh, the uh, recently I was asked to be an editor for the Consortium Journal, which is associated with Kepler Education. It's also uh, it also is a Roman Roads Press publication, but the first issue of the consortium journal just came out as a matter of fact if you you send me uh your address i have a couple of extra copies i'll mail you a copy of this journal it is a journal specifically for classical christian school folks whether you are a educator or homeschool parent or you are a person who's just interested in the phenomena of classical christian education this is a journal that is designed to bridge the gap between scholarship uh, of a 
liberal arts, social science, scientific, hard science, nature, and classical Christian education. So, uh, and I'm, I'm one of the editors of that. I have an article in the first journal piece on customs and the importance of customs and considering customs. And I'm going to be doing a, a appreciative review of Johann Wiesinger's Waning of the Middle Ages. Um, I think a, a classic masterpiece, great book that we could read today and learn a lot from it. And there are a couple of marvelous translations and editions of it of recent years that I'll be writing about. But that, those would be a few places someone could check out. Fantastic. Thank you, Robert. And thank you for joining me today. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. God bless you. Well, thank you, my brother. It's been a blessing to me, too. And the Lord bless you.